Thank you. So, um, so Julie and Johanna asked me to play work that I found inspiring or at least useful. That's something I've uh, heard. So uh, I should say that some people whose work I really, really um, admire and find uh, inspiring, like Robert Crowich and Joe Richman, I'm not going to play because they were elsewhere in other uh, sessions. Um, I'm going to begin this session with some really old, old school stuff. This is a, I'm going to play you a clip from Joe Frank. Joe Frank was this guy who was doing uh, local radio at WBAI, the Pacifica station in New York, in the 70s. And then at some point in the late 70s, my old boss, a guy named Keith Talbot at NPR, brought him down to NPR in Washington. And for the next six or seven years, he did uh, a couple of shows a year, 10, 12 shows a year for the NPR Playhouse series. In 1986, he moved out to KCRW in Santa Monica and, uh, and did uh, weekly shows there. My recordings of him are, are so old that they actually won't, uh, <laughs> they won't play. So, uh, so this, this thing you're about to hear I got off the Internet. If you end up liking Joe Frank, you can search his name on Google, and all of his old shows are available as MP3 files for you to conveniently download and listen to. This is the, opening, uh, the very opening to a show called Work in Progress from 1986. <laughs> Um, it does really powerfully this thing that, that I think the best radio stories do, and that is that it, it pulls you in and you find yourself listening, and you're not exactly sure why you're listening. 
He doesn't explain anything to start off uh, the program. He just starts the sequence of actions going. This happened, and then this happened, and this happened, and you find you can't turn off the radio because you feel like it's leading somewhere. He effectively creates this dream that we're going somewhere, and you want to find out where it's going. I, I first heard Joe Frank when I was 19, and I had never heard anything like it, these stories that unfolded like little movies for the radio. And there's something about the way he reads and all. I, I feel like it opened up for me this idea of, of, a, of a feeling that you could get from a story from the radio that I had never even conceived of. Um, as the story progresses, another thing that's interesting about Joe is that the story progresses. The point of the story keeps changing, and so you find yourself keep guessing what is it going to be about, and what is it going to be about, and what is it going to be about. Um, that's very unusual. Most stories sort of start in one place and go to another and go to another and kind of come back in a way that you can feel them coming back. He'll just start in a place and then just go to the next anecdote and the next. The next beat uh, in this story, uh, I'll play you a little more, tells how uh, a month after, uh, basically she starts hearing this typing, but it comes about because there's this aspiring novelist who invites her over uh, after like a condo meeting or something, an apartment meeting, to read his work. And her work uh, is horrible. The guy's work is horrible. It's boring. It's pointless. It's full of cliches. But she doesn't know how to say that to him. So she says instead, well, there are rough spots, but it shows promise. And the guy goes, really? Really? Could it be published? And she says, sure, if you keep at it. And so then he goes out and he buys a manual typewriter, and then he's up all night typing, and the typing is driving her batty. And at some point you think that the relationship between her and this guy is going to be the story. The typing and pacing kept her up, and she was furious at herself for encouraging him. She thought of urging him to hitchhike across the country, ride the rails, join the French Foreign Legion, or buy a one-way ticket to India to live and get a taste of real life. Then, when he came back, he might have something to say, though she doubted it because his work was so stupid and childish that it was insulting to the intelligence of anyone who might read it. He was really a no-talent, a fool living in a fool's paradise, engaged in a pointless exercise in futility, which he seemed to have charmed himself, with her help, into believing served some purpose. Then, one night, the typing stopped. For the next few days, the would-be writer was nowhere to be seen. Finally, the janitor checked his apartment. The clothes he'd last worn were found folded on his bed, and the room was suffused with the odor of perfume. And now, at last, she is no longer bothered by her neighbors at night. Another story but she still can't sleep because of the buzzing of the power lines outside her window, the dripping shower faucet, the occasional banging of the pipes in the walls, the low-frequency throbs of the bass from the dance club down the street, and the distant barking of a guard dog. She feels that her own self-consciousness is the worst enemy, that she can't stop thinking, and that she has no control over her thoughts. In order to clear her mind, she'll lie there in the dark. And, and then for a while it becomes an entire story about insomnia, and then that shifts, and it becomes a story about she goes out for a drive at night, and it becomes a story about her drive at night. Um... There's a thing that happens, I feel like, when you're, when you're producing a full hour of radio, you have a choice about how much you want to explain. And Joe is at the extreme end. He explains nothing. And the thing that is supposed to work for you, the thing that's supposed to make you want to hear what's going to happen next, is not the promise that you're going to hear the day's news or the list of, here's what's coming up this hour. It simply is the forward momentum of the story. And if you think about how to 
construct something like this, what he's doing is a really pure form and a really easy form to, to imitate, which is uh, he simply starts the action going. This thing happened, and then that led to this thing, and that led to this thing, and that led to this thing. And the, the way that we're built to listen to stories, actually, if you start, I feel like he's a really good illustration. If you start any sequence of actions going, this thing happened, and then this, and that led to this, and that led to this, we will keep listening because we feel instinctively it's leading somewhere and we want to know where it's going. One, one of the reasons why um, on This American Life, on the show that I work on now, we don't do a billboard at the top of the show the way that most uh, radio and television news magazines, feature magazines, documentary magazines do, is because it, it was our feeling that um, the thing that will pull you in more is simply the forward motion of events. This thing happened, then this thing, then this thing, and that that would be more effective to make it seem like the hour is about to be interesting. Here's the opening of another show. This one is from 2001, called Fire and Ice. This isn't an, an MP3, but a real air check at full fidelity, as it would be on the radio. This, again, is the very beginning of the show. So anyway, last night we go to Mandalay, and it's like... On Friday nights, they have this really great club. It's a great mix of people, all colors of people, and really great soulful music. And uh, we dance together. Joe, it's like unbelievable when we dance together. He's got... Uh, some of the things I like about it is, number one, that it's a phoner. Um, Joe is, is a really careful producer. Every moment of it is meticulously planned, but he doesn't fetishize the idea of sound, of getting great sound. And what he's looking for is a kind of naturalism. And I'm playing you the beginning of this just to show you how, how he starts it so it feels like we're already in motion. We're halfway into a conversation. And about a minute after this, there's this incredible moment I want to play for you. Um, basically what happens is that the woman on the phone explains to Joe that she was out celebrating because there's this guy and she's fallen for this guy, but she actually hasn't slept with the guy because he's married. And just the night before, he told his wife that he wanted to leave the marriage and they had this huge celebratory night out dancing. And, okay, so let me play you this thing. And he told her, you know, the truth about everything. And he's been lying and lying and lying and living with this woman for five years and not ever loving her. You mean lying because he had other affairs with other lots, women? Lots, lots, and lots and lots. <laughs> and he really believes that I am the woman he's been waiting for his whole life and he felt that the night that he met me and he is changing his entire life to be with me. He looks like a different person, you know? He told her the absolute truth and hold on, I have to flush the toilet. <laughs> I'm so delighted by the, the things we can share. Can you guys hear okay? Oh, can we boost up the treble? What she's talking to him, and she says, um, hold on for a second, Joe, I have to flush the toilet. Um, I'm just going to roll it back, and maybe you can hear it. And he told her, you know, the truth about everything. He's lying. Lots, lots, and lots, and lots. And he really believes that I am the woman he's been waiting for his whole life, and he felt that the night that he met me, and he is changing his entire life to be with me. He looks like a different person, you know? He told her the absolute truth, and hold on, I have to flush the toilet. <laughs> I'm so delighted by the, the things we can share. 
best listening environment for that. Over the radio, it sounds fine. What, what, the thing I would say about it is um, it's not real. She's an actress. The whole, the whole thing is, is fake. And one of the things about uh, Joe is that he works with a lot of actors and actresses, and when he does, what it sounds like is people just completely talking. You can't tell that they're actors and actresses. There's always a completely real feeling to it. And the way, what he's done is that he figured out a way to do radio drama. I mean, often it's not people on the phone. It's real scenes unfolding in front of the microphones. And um, he found a way to do a radio drama that doesn't sound like radio dramas of the 1940s with corny-ass sound effects and people reading like they're actors. Um, he invented a whole, a whole new way to do it. And what he does is that he has plot points that he wants the actors to hit. And then he sits with them, you know, to get 10 minutes or 15 minutes of stuff. He'll sit with them in the studio for an hour or two hour and just have them perform it, ad-lib, do it over and over. And then he'll just cut it down so it hits all the pot points he likes over and over, uh, or one after another. Um, I'll play you another one. You guys tell me if you can hear it. For some reason, I decided to leave the house and go for a drive. <laughs> go for a drive? Yeah, go for a drive in my, in my Volvo. On Valium and liquor? Yeah. Can you hear? Okay. And to not great effect. And there was a part of me that I guess was sort of curious to see if I could handle it in the way I handled it in California. Mm -hmm. So I had to put myself in a what I call a California headset, where a lot of people drink and drive in California or do all sorts of things. And they can do it because they have to just concentrate much more than if you walk out of a Okay. Maybe I should uh, move on to other clips. The thing that I like about this is, is if you, again, if you think about how to get people listening, if one technique that, that you can use is just getting a sequence of actions going, this thing happens, and then this, and then this, like Joe does. But the other thing is you could just start the whole segment, as he does here, with a, a provocative promise that it's going to be the story about this guy who decides to go out driving, liquored up on Valium. And poses the question, the guy poses the question, can I do this the way I did back in California? And then there's like a five-minute story where he talks about actually hitting a police car and driving away without stopping, um, which I have to say it's hard to turn away from. At the end of this, maybe I'll come back to that if there's, if there's time. Um, moving to higher fidelity clips. You can, you can move the, um, the, the equalization on the speakers back to, to normal if you want because uh, these will be regular fidelity. Um, I wanted to say something about daily reporting, and, and I have a, a clip. I, I feel like it's important to play uh, stories that have been put together fast because it's 90% or more of all radio that's made, and probably most of you, that's what you do. Um, and me, for most of my career, that's most of what I did. Um, because any story techniques that can be done in these fancy-ass uh, stories can be done in, you know, in a one-day, two-day deadline. This, this story I'm going to play you a little bit of is a two-day story from beginning to end, from thinking of it to it being on the air. It aired on All Things Considered back in the 80s. Remember, I'm very old. And, um, and uh, it's a six, in, the, in its final version, it's six, six and a half minutes long. And, and the first thing I want you to notice in it is, is the writing. This is uh, done by a, a reporter named Alex Chadwick. And um, to understand how, the, I'm going to play you the beginning of this story, and to understand how this could be badly written, I sort of wrote a sort of standard way a person might write the opening of his story. This is the way sort of that, that I think most of us were taught to write for radio. Um, on Monday of this week, a Los Angeles judge ruled that a high school student would have to dissect a frog. Jennifer Graham had sued the Victorville High School District, claiming that her conscience prevented her from killing a creature for biology class. The, drug ru the judge ruled that he, 
The judge ruled, gee, I'm stumbling just like I would on the radio. The judge ruled that she would have to use a real frog, not a plastic model as her lawyers proposed, but that the school would have to, and then, you know, basically it would just lay out the facts of this thing happened, here's how it got to this point. Here's how Alex writes it. Um, and have you, well. We've delayed a few days bringing you this next story because it hasn't had an ending. It still doesn't, but we're going ahead anyway with our own modest contribution to developments. Here's the situation. In Southern California, in Victorville, at Victor Valley High School, Jennifer Graham, age 16, would not carry out an assignment in biology class. She refused to dissect a frog. She said it bothered her that any creature should have to die so that she could cut it open for study. It was a matter of principle. And as with many such issues, it wound up in court. On Monday, a judge in Los Angeles issued this ruling. Jennifer must study the innards of a real frog rather than the plastic model or computer mock-up she'd proposed. But the school must supply a frog which has died of natural causes. That's right, natural causes. Excellent idea, responded a lawyer for school. I'm just going to move back because just so you could hear. He says, he says, they had died of natural causes, and then he goes, that's right, of natural causes. It's so spoken. Perhaps happy with any solution. If we have to station, excellent idea, responded a lawyer for the school, perhaps happy with any solution. If we have to station someone down by the swamp or wherever it is they live to see him die, we'll do it. And his partner added, frogs don't live very long anyway. Indeed, how difficult could it be with all the frogs in the world to find one that had naturally croaked? Don't stand in one place too long or you get sort of stuck in the muck. Ah, yeah, I, I think I am stuck in the muck. <laughs> Great hiding places for frogs. A naturalist named Christy Crawl, really, agreed to help us search for a naturally dead frog. Okay, the tone, you feel like he's really actually talking to you. You know, he's very aware on the radio, he knows he's on the radio, uh, but there's nothing uh, cloying about, about his presentation. You feel that he is about out there to amuse himself and you at the same time. Um, I was a really, really terrible writer for radio. I, I, I wasn't on the radio for the first 10 years that I worked in radio. I was a tape cutter and sort of a back, back scenes kind of producer. And, um, and there came a point six or seven years in where I decided I should learn how to write a story and, and so I would try to write these stories, and I would often get stuck. And when I would get stuck, the, the trick that I would do is that I would find – I would basically just imitate Alex Chadwick. I would write the script as if I, it was going to be read by Alex Chadwick, and then I would just read it myself. And um, it solves a real problem. If any of the, the younger people here are trying to figure out how, how to learn to write, stealing, imitation, it's all up for grabs. Um, in, in this story, like one of the things that, that I remember really striking me, there's a moment that maybe wouldn't register with, with many people. He says, um, it was a matter of principle when he's telling the thing. It was a matter of principle, and as with many such issues, it wound up in court. This notion that he's going to leap out of the story that he's telling to this, to this uh, it was a matter of principle, and as with such issues, it, it ended up in court, the, it, sort of leaping out to the like, this is typical of something that happens a lot. It's suddenly in the middle of this... Um, you know, basically a daily news story. I, I had, I, well, listening to him do that, I learned to do it and stole it. And so all over the place in stories that I would write, I would say, now as often happens in this kind of case, da-da-da-da, um, which is a useful trick to have. 
Okay. So Alex walks around the swamp. He sees frogs. He sees a heron eat a frog. There were frogs, plenty of them, but no dead ones, nor even any sickly ones, not that you could tell. We're not likely to find a dead frog because they, by and large, probably don't die of old age. You don't see them floating around. They get eaten. They're a real primary food source. Are there any dead? Are we in the wrong place to find the dead frogs? Are there any dead frogs in this park? The only place we ever find dead frogs is actually near the visitor center on cement and asphalt surfaces where they have either stayed out too long and got very dried out or got stepped on or run over by a car. We're shuffling around in the dry woods here. A lot of dried leaves in these woods, but I don't see any dried frogs. Okay, this is the other thing. I want you to notice in this story, again, very quickly put together, but, but there are tape-to-tape transitions. That is, as uh, Crowich was saying at the first session yesterday, there's a kind of music to any radio story. Like there's a certain kind of tone to it. And part of the rhythm and music of any story has to do with the rhythm of the way you use your tape. And most people, most things on public radio, use, use the rhythm of the script and the tape is fantastically boring. And that's one of the things that contributes to the stories not having a lot of feeling. That is, the reporter will have three or four sentences of script, and then there'll be, you know, 15 seconds, 20 seconds of tape, and then another three or four sentences of script, and then another 15 or 20 seconds of tape, and then three or four sentences of script. It's like script, tape, script, tape, script, tape. It's a very boring rhythm. And so even as a general assignment reporter, even on stories that I was putting together in four or five hours, which is the staple of what your job is generally when you're beginning as a reporter, um, you know, I always made it my business that every story had to have at least one tape-to-tape transition. That is, it wasn't always script, tape, script, tape, but sometimes it would go script, quote, another quote from someone else starts, you ID that person, that quote continues. So it's, so you're just breaking up the rhythm, or script, quote, sound begins, quote, then you ID the person, then the quote continues. So it isn't always script, tape, script, tape, tape, script, tape. And it's really easy to do. In the in this session yesterday about, um, you know, m- making interesting radio on a deadline, one of the things that, that, one of the, that the presenter from the CBC said was that you have to look at your opportunities for scenes. And just as you have to do that, you want to look at your opportunities for, um, for tape-to-tape transitions. So in this piece... I can tell you that, that, do you notice he finishes saying, like, the first section of the piece, he says, how hard could it be for, for a frog to naturally croak? And then the next thing you hear is splash. That's totally pre-planned. When he goes out into the field, he knows he wants to, I know that because, um, because I was uh, actually his producer in this piece. He, he, um, he, he, it was pre-planned that we would get a sound to make the transition, and then we would figure out something for the naturalist to say to bring her on stage. So he says, uh, the frog that naturally, cro- we're looking for a frog that naturally croaked, splash, quote from her. She says, oh, you better move around, you're going to get stuck in the muck. And then he IDs her, and then her quote continues. He says, Christy Crawl, her real name, really, you know, as a naturalist. And so you're breaking up the rhythm. The same thing here. He knows um, at the end of we're walking around in the water, we're going to have a scene up in the dry area. And so we basically just recorded, like, smushing around in the, whatever you call it, dried, planty stuff. <laughs> and, and then 
created a line for him to say so it wouldn't be script, sound, script, which I also think can be kind of dull, but script, sound, on location, I'm here in the bug. Why are you going to do this? Why? Number one, it makes your piece more interesting to listen to. And number two, it's just more fun. You know, you're working in public radio, you're never going to make any money, and you might as well uh, amuse yourself. Okay, the next thing that happens in the story is that the naturalist brings out a flattened <laughs> roadkill frog about that big. And all you have is the skin and their skeleton. It looks like it looks like if you took a frog balloon and let all the air out of it, this is what you'd have left. Yeah, it looks more like a piece of uh, jerky. <laughs> Again, take your opportunities for making things visual. Radio is your most visual medium. That isn't actually true, but if you say it like that, it sounds true. And you have to look at your opportunities for, like, what can I make a picture of? And Alex is a really experienced reporter and a really, um, a, a, you know, good writer. And so he's out in the field, and he's, he's trying to figure out how am I going to describe this frog thing. And he's like, it looks like a dried-out frog balloon that pretty much... That's pretty good of a job. Frog jerky. <laughs> no organs. No nothing. So this wouldn't, this wouldn't do for a biology class dissection. No. no, no, not unless all you were studying was the skeletal structure. Again, the transition. Victor by Uh Yes, I'm calling from National Public Radio to reach Julian Weaver, the principal of Victor Valley High School. Okay, can you hold a moment? Sure. Thank you. Mr. Weaver, may I help you? Uh, hello, Mr. Weaver. I'm calling about uh, Jennifer Graham and, and her frog. Yes, sir. Okay, now what really happened is when the first person picked up, Alex had an extra line where he said, we're recording this conversation for national broadcast. Can I speak with? The trick in when you're doing that is that you don't give them, uh, you don't make the yes or no question the can I record you. You make the yes or no question, can I speak with? So, hi, I'm calling from National Public Radio. Uh, I'm recording this conversation for possible national broadcast. Can I talk to the principal of the school? And then hopefully they'll just pretend that they didn't hear that or they won't notice and you've got it on tape and you're completely safe and then you chop it up before you go to air. You are unsuable. Um, otherwise, you always have to tell people if you're, if you're recording them for broadcast, um, partly because it's the law and partly out of simple human decency. Um, now, here's the very next thing that happens. What happens, sorry, I cut out, what happens is that, uh, this is what happens. We went out to the uh, wetlands near here, uh, kind of a boggy, swampy area over in Virginia, and uh, looked all over for uh, frogs and, and saw several, but we didn't see any that had died of natural causes. Now, it's, it's my understanding that there are sources that are available. What those sources are, that information has not been communicated to me, but uh, I understand there are sources available to find a, a frog that has died of natural causes. The natural cause of death for a frog, so far as I can determine, is being eaten by some other creature. <laughs> I don't want to catch that with a 10-foot pole. <laughs> it sounds like you're keeping your sense of humor through this. Yeah. situation, uh, and it's sometimes a situation that I think uh, is going to have a tremendous impact upon um, high school biology courses uh, throughout the United States. 
I was thinking that uh, if, if it was uh, late summer and uh, I was a kid going back to high school, I'd probably be sitting around with uh, several of my friends saying, come on, first day of school, we'll have a natural death frog club, and we're all going to insist that they go out and get naturally dead frogs. Uh, I don't think that would happen. You, do, you don't think kids are like that? No, nah, they don't find it uh, a strong enough issue to go out there and do that. Okay, and then Alex IDs him and the story's over. Um, and once you, do you imagine that the, the, the quote that, that most reporters would end up with in a situation like this? The typical quote would be the very first thing the principal says, which is an utterly dull quote. Let me play it for you. This is a very easy quote to imagine in a story any day on public radio on any of our stations. Now, it's, it's my understanding that there are sources that are available. What those sources are, that information has not been communicated to me, but uh, I understand there are sources available to find a, a frog that has died of natural causes. In most news reports, that's all you'd ever get from the principal. He would be this talking head with, with a point of view, uh, and he's in there in the story to illuminate an issue. Alex takes the extra step of actually uh, talking to him as a person and trying to get him to laugh. And I have to say, as, as somebody uh, who edits a lot of stories from, from a lot of different reporters, uh, the, I, the single biggest improvement that, uh, that radio reporters, beginning radio reporters, can make in their stories, and it's something that, that they almost always want to avoid, and I certainly wanted to avoid when I was a beginner, is, is to put themselves in the quotes. That is, that your quotes aren't just some quote of the guy, like the boring quote that I just played you, but that we hear you interact with the guy. That's what can make the croak great. And often, like as a listener, I'll be listening to a story, and, you, and the thing I'm thinking is, come on, ask the guy, like, what the hell is he thinking? And the reporter never does, because they don't somehow, they feel like that's not as objective, or that isn't as something, or, or they just don't like hearing their own voice on tape. That's true, that was true for me for a long time, and is for a lot of the uh, people who we sometimes edit. Um, the fact is, though, like if you if you um, if you're not in the quotes, if you're not in there arguing, cajoling, wheedling, charming, trying to make laugh the people who you're interviewing, it's like you're giving up one of your most powerful tools. It's like you're giving up this whole range of things, including you're giving up documenting the part of the personality of that principal that isn't just the talking head. Again, another rule of thumb: if you're in a same day story situation, for me it was always. If it was a same-day story, no matter what, there had to be one tape-to-tape -tape transition. There had to be one moment that was in there simply to amuse me. It was just there for me. And it could be like a moment of writing. It could be a moment of tape. And the, and the, and the third rule for me was always um, that somebody had to be more than a talking head. Somebody had to have a moment when they were a real person. And when the principal sort of – the principal is a real stiff in the story – but there's like he, you, you feel like like because of the way that Alex talks to him, he feels like a real person. He responds in a 3D way because of the fact that Alex is 3D. Another rule of thumb: one of the things that I was taught, you know, like how do you make somebody a real person? Like, do you need fancy writing? Do you need some super skill? One of the ways that you can do it is by talking to them as a real person. At, at any interview, it's like it's like a party that you are throwing. And your guests will follow the rules that you set. And if you act like a real person and react in a real way, like in the point in here where Alex says really beautifully, um, you know, if I were a kid, 
I and my friends at the beginning of school would say we're going to have a frog club and we're going to make them get us like frogs like this in a totally real way that you could imagine him really saying. And the principal says, oh, no, kids aren't like that. And like Alex laughs at him. He laughs at his own interviewee in a way that's really real. It's like that creates an opportunity for everything uh, to be real. I'm trying to figure out which thing to play you next. I'm going to play you another uh, fast turnaround story. Um, just because I, I feel like a lot, a lot of the conference that, that, I've, that I've been to has been on, on sort of longer stories that take days and weeks, and, and one feels like one could never do them. Uh, this is a story uh, that, I feel, that illustrates uh, the thought, um, and this is a story that I'm involved in in an ancillary way, and these are the only two that I'm involved in of, of the group that I'm about to play you, uh, Alex's and this one. Um, I'm a sort of supporting player in this story. Where, where, where This story is really Robert Siegel's, and what it is is that... Um, this is an example of a news story and how you can do a news story in a way that's different than anyone else does. And there's, there's kind of a, a rule of uh, thumb, I think, and that is where are you going to get your story ideas from? Well, one of the really good places is you should listen to your friends and the people in the newsroom and listen to the jokes they make about the news and the sarcastic comments because those could lead you to a great story. This was done um, all the way back during uh, the first Bush administration, the cute one, when... Um, when uh, President Bush nominated David Souter to the Supreme Court. So this is an all-things-considered story, and, uh, and here's the challenge. Uh, well, first of all, as a news story, here's what happened in that news story. Basically, with anybody who gets nominated to the Supreme Court in America, Democrat or Republican, what happens as soon as they're nominated is that we begin a process where we slowly roast them over the barbecue fire that is abortion rights. And there are hearings, and people attack them, and blah, blah, blah. And then this is, you know, in the, the late 80s, so, so, the, so this is a, a while back, early 90s. And, um, <laughs> and so, so David Souter came up with a really unique way to get through this difficult hearing process. And, and the way that he came up with was he said that um, when it came to abortion rights, whether they should be legal or not, he said um, he, he just hadn't ever given it any thought. That was his actual strategy. And, um, and so, okay, so in a story meeting one day, somebody, I believe it was Robert Siegel, because this is the sort of thing that he would say because he's this incredibly funny, smart man. Um, and if he didn't say it, I don't know, he probably did say it. Um, somebody said, you know, how did the Bush administration find the one adult in America who does not have an opinion about abortion? Okay, bingo. That's a really funny thought that you can turn into a story. Now, as a reporter, your question becomes, what's the tape? Like, what are you going to go to? Because you can't just come out and say that joke. You have to create a context. So we went for the cheapest, you know, if you have an opinion, basically, you have to find an interviewee to be your puppet who agrees with you and says that opinion. And, um, and so, so, uh, so here's the strategy that we come up with. and the American Civil Liberties Union have not asked to testify and apparently will not oppose the nominee. Okay, this is the actual news story saying, here's what happened today. We're the second story in the spin-down. I'm Nina Totenberg at the Capitol. Abortion has been at the center of much of the debate over Judge David Souter. He represents one of the smallest minorities on the issue. Most Americans have opinions about legalized abortion, 
Both Gallup and Yankelovich have found that 89% of their poll samples believe that the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision should either be overturned or upheld by the Supreme Court. According to recent Lou Harris polls, as many as 98% of Americans take a position on Roe v. Wade. Today in downtown Chicago, reporter Ira Glass did an informal poll of 25 Chicagoans on State Street, and among them he found 100% had some opinion on the landmark abortion decision. So these are our puppets. No one has a right to kill babies. It should be legal, for sure. I think it should be legal. I believe uh, life begins at conception. It's okay. I think a woman has the right. Perhaps with an eye toward bucking the tyranny of majorities, the Bush administration has found one of those people whom we so frequently ignore in reporting American public opinion, those who tell Harris they have no opinion, who tell Yankelovich they are not sure, and who tell Gallup they don't know. I will listen to both sides of that case. I have not made up my mind. Judge Souter's nomination may yet elevate a spokesman for the unsure and the undecided to a body that, since the founding of the Republic, has been filled with only rare and recent exception by white males who hold opinions. Anyway, it goes on. You get the idea. I, I feel like the thing that's really uh, great about it uh, as, as a story uh, is, like, Robert's writing is just, like, fantastic, and, and the notion to hear him say these things is really wonderful. But also you get the feeling that everyone involved is enjoying themselves. There's a feeling of, like, people are enjoying their, their jobs. Like, it's fun to be on the radio. Let's do something that's going to be fun. And, and I have to say, like, part of the aesthetics of the news is that when it comes to a serious story like a Supreme Court nomination or whatever, usually there's a strict um, division in the aesthetics of the news of you've got the serious stories over here, and you've got the, and, and, and you've got an occasional, like it would be, a newscast would be serious story, serious story, serious story, serious story, and then the wacky, funny guy at the end, like the funny weatherman or the eccentric commentator on public radio or the sports guy who plays the bloopers, which are really great, actually. And, um, and the two cannot meet. The funny is not supposed to touch the serious because the serious is afraid of being contaminated, whereas, I mean, I, I believe that actually, Broadcasting is so new, you know, broadcasting is so new that someday we're going to look back on that as just being very, very primitive. Um, because when we tell each other stories, there's funny stuff mixed in with serious stuff all the time. And in a way, the more serious, the more the funny moments kind of jump out. And, and I think it's important to have moments of pleasure and enjoyment and humor and this moments where you feel like, ha ha, you know, like, what a surprise. Like, look how funny this is. Like in Alex's piece and like this thing from, uh, from Robert Siegel, because, because the, you know, the news is the part of, it's the part of broadcasting that is pretending most aggressively to be documenting reality. That is, journalism is saying, like, okay, all that other stuff is made up, but the, here's the real world. And I think unintentionally, because of the, the sort of super serious aesthetics of the news, it, it's, it's like all um, humor and surprise and pleasure and a sense of discovery are totally removed from the real news part of the newscast. And, and what that does is this, this part of broadcasting, which is pretending, pretending to capture the world, it's like it's saying this is a world by, by accident almost. It's saying it, it, what it does is it describes a world where there is no pleasure and surprise and joy and curiosity most of the time. And, 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 and by having moments which 
are surprising and pleasurable. What it's, what it's like, it's like you're restoring the world to its real size. You're, you're, restoring, you're restoring things to the way they really are. It's saying this, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. Pleasure and surprise and joy are possible, which is a, a hopeful thing. My problem with most journalism and most radio, in fact, is that it all makes the world seem way smaller and less joyous than it is. And I feel like that's why it's important to have really funny, great moments in really serious issue stories. Okay, here's another quick turnaround story. This is from uh, Dean Olsher. Dean, raise your hand. You're here in the room. He's the host of The Next Big Thing. And a few weeks ago, he actually did one of the rarest things that ever happens in radio. This man over here. He invented a new form for a radio story. He literally invented something that no one, I believe, has ever done. And you are lucky enough to be here to hear it. Um, here's the setup. He's in an unfamiliar city. He's very hungry. He doesn't know anyone there. He wants food that's decent and unique and local and tasty. I have to say, like, I, I have a prejudice here. I am utterly uninterested in stories about food on the air. To me, I just feel like, why, why is that on the radio? And this totally wins hands down, all skepticism set aside. Okay. So he calls uh, this guy named Jim Leff, a.k.a. the Chow Hound. He doesn't exactly explain what that means, but you sort of figure it out as it goes along. The thing that he invents is that he combines a documentary field recording with a phoner that's happening in real time. And to describe the radicalism of this, if you think about the way a documentary works, usually there's a strict division between the documentary part, where out in the field we're gathering the tape. If you picture the real world, the stuff that really happens, right? And then periodically you have the, okay, let's think about this, let's talk about what really happened. And that's filmed later. He's doing it all in real time. Okay, imagine this. You're in an right, unfamiliar place. this because I just told you this part. And if there's someone who knows way Jim had almost a knee-jerk culinary response when I told him where I was. Chili! I've heard that about Cincinnati chili. Although, how can it be? I mean, don't they put spaghetti in with their chili here? They put everything in with their chili. And that's still chili? Yeah, there's a series of ways. One way, two way, three way, four way. It goes up to, I don't know, 730. Each way involves adding an extra ingredient. Well, listen, I mean, I, I've never been to Cincinnati. I don't know yeah. anything about Cincinnati. On the other hand, if you want me to sort of guide you in, sort of like the chow traffic control, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of hungry right now, which is good, because it means my, my instinct should be extra keen. Okay, because you know what? I'm starving. Roll off the bass a little bit. Boost the treble a little bit, please, sound guys. Just because, yes, it's another phoner. Yes. <laughs> what he's saying is, I'll guide you around. Okay. Um, describe what you're seeing. I see lots of cars. I see Lazarus. No food. It's it's desolate. Oh God. Look for little places. You know how you're, when you're in a supermarket, you should never look at eye level because that's where they put the expensive stuff you don't need. Anything that catches your eye, immediately resist. All right. Do you see anybody overweight? Not so overweight that they've kind of like let it all go and they might be eating too many Twinkies. Can you guys understand? He's saying look for somebody who's overweight. He's somebody who looks like they're just like willing to take on a few extra pounds in the interest of, of good living. Find somebody like that. Hmm. Excuse me. Can you tell me someplace really good to eat? Rock Bottom Cafe. No. Nope. What is that? 
It's a restaurant right over here, Rock Bottom Brewery. It's really good. Oh, I think I saw it. Yeah, uh-huh. right here. You uh-huh. can get an absolutely fantastic on. lunch. Is there a place that's local? That is local. I don't know if you can hear it here, but like the person is talking and in real time, the guy on the phone is going, no, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. Okay. No, but I mean, that's not a chain. Montgomery Inn. It's a rib place. A rib place? Yeah. Well, I like her. Right over the river, the boathouse. Are you not from here? I like here? her. I'm not. I keep hearing about chili. Where do you get good Skyline chili? Skyline chili. Skyline chili, where is that? Go right to the 580, make a right, and it's right there. Thank you. Dean, you know what? The woman who recommended those ribs, I got really good vibes from her. Did you too? Yeah, I did too. She knows what she's talking about. I'm really hungry. Me too. I'm going to have to ask somebody about Montgomery's. Okay, now here's something else that I wouldn't have guessed in putting a story back. Throughout the entire story, about every two minutes, they remind each other how hungry they are, which I think is just accidental, but it turns out to be brilliant in terms of building narrative tension. Excuse me, sir. I'm looking for a rib place called Montgomery's. I'm not sure how you get there. It's down the river, down that way. Thank you. How far are you? I have no idea. Oh, God. Jim. Okay, Dean, get in the cab. Get in the cab. Just get in the cab. Ask him to bring you to Montgomery Ritz. I think yeah, I need yeah. to do an intervention here. Taxi! Taxi! Come over here! Hello, how are you? I'm looking for Montgomery's Rib Place. Have you eaten there? It's been so long since I ate out. I see. My other life, I did a lot. Uh-huh. I used to be a research chemist. Oh, a research chemist? Food, food flavoring and stuff like that? No, I tried to invent drugs. Were you making LSD? No. <laughs> I did make some dimethyltryptamine. Sounds crazy. I have three degrees from Harvard. I also gave them the ideas of led Okay, so he gets in the cab with this guy. Um, I'm going to spin ahead. I so carefully edited clips of this, and now I'm just going to play you from the raw thing, because apparently my CD with those two clips isn't working as perfectly as it might. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead. Okay, so... um. With, so he has that moment, which I really love, which is the, just the digressive throwaway moment where it turns out the cab driver, he gets is some like former research chemist and a talking mouth. And the fact, way they do it where the sound of the guy talking just sort of fades down as the music fades up. Could you hear that okay? Okay. And like notice also, no narration, no narration. It Basically, it's like an hour or two of tape that he's gathering in the field. And the way they're recording the phone, I had to ask Dean... Uh, because I couldn't figure out how the hell is he doing this, is that he's, um, he's talking, you're talking to the studio back in New York? Uh, they're recording the phone back in New York, and I'm recording myself. Right, he's recording himself, so he's carrying a cell phone, and he's ca- carrying uh, his own cassette recorder. Cassette? Yeah. That, right, so the time will match exactly the speed of the dat that you're recording in the studio. And... Um, and they're recording the telephone side of it in New York at his studio. He's out in the field. He's recording his partner and dad. And, when, and so it's a, sort of an awkward physical thing because whenever he asks anybody a question, he has to both hold his, his microphone and his cell phone so the guy on the phone can hear what they say. So you can imagine what it's like for the interviewees. So it's pure motion, motion, motion. They go into the first place. The first place turns out to suck. I'm going to skip that just because I love the second place so much. Thank you. You too. Okay. He tastes the food from the first place. It's horrible. Spilled the ribs on myself. Good. Keep going. 
slight smoke flavor. Please, so. no, this is what I want. Come on. Yes. Taiwan. Formosa's Taiwan. Oh, yeah, this yeah. Is, this, is, this is so beautiful. Oh, it makes me so happy. Come on. Okay, so they get to this other place. It's looking for Skyline Chili. Oh, my God. The original Skyline Chili is right next to this old townhouse that has a place called the Formosa Restaurant. What country is Formosa again? Hold on, let me go check. I have a dictionary. Okay, this guy who he's talking to, he has a diction. He has a pla- he, he's looking up Formosa to figure out what country it's in so he can figure out what kind of cuisine this is. Taiwan. Formosa is Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I know the cuisine really well. Go look in the window, see if there's a menu. Bad news. Uh-huh. There's only one person sitting in there eating. Don't worry, doesn't matter. Is there a menu? Jim, what I see is one of those press-on leather boards That's made fine. by Pepsi, and it says spring roll, egg roll, crab langoon, pot sticker, sweet and sour chicken, pepper steak, mugu guy pan, spicy chicken. Stop! Stop, please. Get away from there. Here we go. I'm entering Skyline Chile. Please seat yourself. So again, super easy. Anybody could do this if they have a sense of composure and they're decent on the radio like Dean is here, where basically he's just narrating at the beginning of each scene. He says, here's where we are, describes a little bit, and then starts the scene. All, right, All I'm in real time, no narration. Yeah, always the, the counter. What are you recommending? Five-way. For first-time customers, I recommend a traditional three-way and a cheese cone. No way. You want five-way. He says five-way. Five-way, that comes with onions and beans. Onions and beans sounds good, yeah. And what would you like to drink? Oh, the tea I never got. Oh, it's here already. A bib? I don't think so. Hey, sure, it's a little messy. (laughs) I feel a little foolish with a bib. Anyway, it goes on. Like, everything about this piece, like, really, it's kind of about nothing. But, like, it's such perfect, pure pleasure. Like, like if you hear it start, you cannot but keep listening. Like, it's just like, and it's also just like, what an incredible form. And just, like, it just has such an air of just complete happiness about it um, in a way that, yeah. All right. Uh, next, in the brief time I have left, um, I'm going to play you super, like, super old stuff. There's a guy named uh, Keith Talbot. The reason why I'm in radio is because of a guy named Keith Talbot, who was on staff at National Public Radio in the late 70s up through NPR's financial crisis in the mid-80s. And um, his job at NPR was to invent new ways to do documentaries. And um, basically, he had for, for a while, he had a monthly show and each show had a completely different aesthetic. That is, everything about the show had to be completely different from anything that anyone had ever heard. That was his job. Um, and NPR sort of viewed him as kind of like a, a Bell Labs kind of place where somebody would invent new ideas that would seep elsewhere into the public radio system, which I'm still here, and so many other people. Jay Allison worked with him. Joe Frank worked with him. Katie Davis sitting over there worked with him. Anybody else? Larry, you work with him? Yeah, he was my first producer. He was your first producer? Okay. He walked out mid-session, you never talked to him again. Okay, well, <laughs> he also, after he left NPR, he went, went on to produce um, the Mickey Mouse Club TV show, the new one, and so he personally knows Britney Spears. True. And um, so 
I digress. Each show had a different aesthetic. And what that meant was that the sound of it had to be different, the music had to be different, the pacing had to be different, and the style of narration had to be different. He would often have music composed for the show. One of the tricks that I learned from him is that if you have a composer do music for your show, you have them do a couple of different themes, one which will be the main theme and then a fast one, a slow one of variations, and you want them all to be in the same key. That way you can mix from one to the other at any point in any story. The thing about the narration that's interesting is that, that his shows were, were normal radio shows like any other magazine radio show, news show, in that he, he faced the same problem that we all face when you put together an hour of radio, which is you've got your individual stories. So we went to visit with somebody in this place and then somebody in this place and somebody in this place. So they're individual segments, which might be two minutes long, might be four minutes long, might be nine minutes long, whatever. And then you have to have some sort of narrative glue to take you from place to place to place to place. And one of the things that Keith was really interested in was inventing new ways to be the glue that would get you from place to place to place. I'm going to play you two clips from his work. The first one, I'm trying to figure out which I should play you first. I'm going to play you one where, where the narration is so um, radically odd. The first, the, the, he did a show in 1978, and this comes off in a, a reel-to-reel tape, and it's very old-school public radio, and it's off of reel-to-reel tape where the, the, the oxide is coming off the tape. So in order to, to play it for you, I had to dub it onto a dad, and you'll hear that the fidelity isn't the greatest, and also the, the speed is a little wobbly because it's so gunky that the reels have a hard time keeping constant speed. Okay, so just prepare, be prepared for that. Um, and uh, this is the opening of a show called, that they called the PTA Variety Hour. It was September. They wanted to do a back-to-school show. And the show that they conceived of, they wanted to, to have, like, a little segment on computers in schools, a little segment on what kids think of teachers, a little segment on, you know, just various things, right? And um, the glue that was going to be the thing that was going to take us from segment to segment, he was going to have two narrators. One of them was going to be this guy who's looking through an old book of school supplies at the beginning of the show. And this guy is inventing. He's making up. He's saying, imagine somewhere there's a PTA meeting going on. And he describes the PTA meeting. And as he describes it, the sound of it emerges out of Radio Nothing. And then at the PTA meeting, he invents a speaker who's speaking at the PTA meeting, who's out there shilling her book. And she's horrible. And what will happen over the course of an hour is the speaker will give a corny little I'm on a book tour speech about some subject. And then the narrator, who's a a lot like Gene Shepard, he's imitating Gene Shepard, somebody who I had never heard of, but but he did these like long monologues on the radio. The narrator will lean into the microphone and he'll go, over there in the corner, Roger Demarius, he came to this thing tonight wondering about, and then, he'll, then the, the, the first narrator will bring up whatever issue it is that's going to be the, the segment that's about to come. So both the deep voice narrator and the fictional uh, book writer will both address the thing that then gets addressed in the segment itself. So you've got two narrators. You still with me? Okay, let's hear it. Uh, just two. School supplies. The G.P. Brown and Company, Beverly, Massachusetts. Give it a little treble. From 1915. Oh, this is really good. You could get three kinds of cards to give to your students. One kind just says merit on it. The other kind says perfect. And the third kind, I guess this is the kind that you give to any kind of student who's hopeless. 
just as present. <laughs> my God, these these kids are my parents, your parents. Imagine, right now, somewhere in this country, a PTA meeting is being planned. Maybe it's even started. They're meeting in the gym, and it's stuffy, and it smells of the basketball team practice. It smells of the old flats from the high school musical. It smells like school. This is working. This is working. I'd like to ask you, please. Okay, now this is a little joke. This guy who's talking now, we had a deep voice narrator who NPR gave us to introduce the series every week named Mike Waters. And Mike Waters would come on at the beginning of every show and he had this incredibly booming, beautiful voice and he'd say, this is Options. I'm Mike Waters or whatever the series. This is Radio Experience. I'm Mike Options. So that's who we cast as the principal. Our cookies and the coffee and the donuts. And would you please move down front. Um, tonight we have with us... Um, The, the imaginary Verna Alice Johnson. And I want you to listen, listen up, and, and listen good. When Options presents a radio experience, the PTA Variety Hour. Ms. Johnson. Parents and uh, teachers, good evening. I can't tell you how nice it is to be here in uh, Dairyland, school district number four. I am Verner Alice Johnson, well-known authoress. I want us to do a little exercise here. If you would all get a piece of paper and a pencil, take out your, your paper and your pencils. If you don't have a pencil, share it with your neighbor. Now, I want you to take your paper and I want you to draw a line down the middle. On one side of the paper, I want you to write why O you. It doesn't matter whether you put it on the left or the right. On one side of that line, write Y O U. Everybody got that? Okay. Now on the other side of the paper, I want you to write S C H O O L. But you got that? Okay. See that? One side, you, school. You, school. Okay, now I want you to erase the line that separates you and school. And draw equal marks between you and school. Simple. Simple. You are the school. You equal the school. You, school, school, you. No difference. Yes, the Dairyland public is gathered with a variety of expectations. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just know what they're thinking? Anyway, and then we go into the first segment. So um, I'm going to play you now, another, and then you know you go into the first segment. He introduces the first person. 
Um, one of the things about the environment is that it's utterly synthetic. It's just, it, like, the applause is just four of us who were working on the show sitting in the studio going like that. I, this is the very first radio show I ever worked on. I didn't know that there were other ones besides this kind. Um, I wasn't a big radio listener or anything. I was just like, oh, that's kind of cool, the radio. It's sort of cool. And so that's like four of us going like that. And the echo is completely from an echo machine, and no one is really in a school at all. Um, I'm going to play you one more thing uh, from Keith. This is a longer excerpt. Uh, this is from a show that he did in 1978 called Ocean Hour. Again, very, very old school. And this is a, just a fantastically beautiful show. Um, maybe this would be the sort of thing where, where Third Coast could talk uh, Keith their NPR into letting us put it up on their website so people could hear it. It's just, it's just, it's just dreamy and beautiful. Keith was obsessed with the ocean. He grew up uh, part of the year on Cape Cod. And, um, and did a number of shows about it and had, and had an encyclopedic sort of uh, uh, <laughs> array of various sorts of sounds of the ocean that he had recorded. And, and from, from working with Keith, I actually came to have a kind of a, a contempt, actually, for having really good sound in stories. Because uh, Keith's feeling was like, yes, it's really, really nice, but the sound's really great, but what's important is, like, what's the story? What are we telling? What are we doing? And I feel like I carry that forward. But he, you'll hear, is just very sound rich. Uh, and... Uh, the narrative device that gets you from place to place, again, all the music for this is composed for it. Okay, if I can just comment on one more thing about the PTA Variety Hour. During the teacher, first of all, it's taking its own goddamn sweet time and isn't afraid to in a way that I'm not sure I would be brave enough to do in a radio piece. It's just like it's not explaining itself. Again, you've got your, you've got your shows where they're going to explain, here's where we're going, here's what we're doing, and you've got your shows which are just like, I'm not going to explain very much at all, you're just going to ride with this or not. And Keith is sort of if you view this as two extremes, with Joe is that I'm not going to, Joe Frank is the, I'm not going to explain and say, um, Morning Edition is the, we're going to explain to you at every minute where you are. Like this American life, like we have stories, uh, that, that, you know, we're basically right here with Morning Edition. Um, Keith is probably like here midway where you can really get lost and not know why you're there. And there's a moment in the thing where Verna Alice Johnson is talking where she's saying, like, you are the school, the school is you, where this is incredibly dreamy, um, Brian Eno music coming up underneath uh, that we got off a record. And um, it's so pretty. It's just like he's going for something that's so like slow and beautiful in this way that um, you don't really hear on American radio very much. Um, certainly not on the show that I work on. Um, okay, so Ocean Hour. The narrative device in Ocean Hour, as you'll hear, is another, um, is another, <laughs> is another made up uh, situation where it's him and a friend and the friend, they've got these incredible segments. It's just like one incredible segment after another. And the glue that takes you from one to another is that the friend, when the friend was a kid, had an imaginary friend. And the imaginary friend loved the ocean. That's the, that's the gimmick. Okay? Ocean Hour, with Keith Talbot and Larry Massett, on Options, from National Public Radio. You seem like somebody who really understands the ocean, who really knows about it. No, no, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody is an expert on the ocean that's too big. It's like wondering if anybody's an expert on the planet, you know. 
sometimes I, th- I think about this uh, this character which I just invented made up in my head no maybe it was going to be a book maybe it was just kind of a you know one of those imaginary friends that you have <laughs> this was just my Walter Ego, my imaginary character who spent all of his days with the ocean. Where did he come from? I saw him at, in the first place as a kid and uh, figured that he grew up in one of those beach houses that you see they're built on stilts or pilings and they're built right by the edge of the ocean or what the architect thought was the edge of the ocean and uh, in this house the ocean would actually come up under the house if it was a sufficiently high tide and you could hear the ocean under the house slapping at the pilings in fact if you peek down through the cracks in the floorboard you could see the ocean under there slapping away kind of rolling back and forth and back and forth and back and forth Sometimes it would be just right, and the tide would be coming up just as he was going to bed. You know, that's a great sound to go to sleep to, just like this pier. A lot of people dock up here. Sailboats dock up here. You can hear the clanging of the rigging and uh, the ropes banging up against the metal masts. Last year there was a Chinese junk docked up for a couple of days. That was only in your imagination. No, it was on the other side of the bridge. Whatever happened to his parents? His, uh, mother, I always figured, was some sort of scientist. I mean, she was the one who was always telling him facts about the ocean and getting interested in it. I actually got the idea from um, Dr. Fish, actually. Marie Pauling Fish. She's an actual scientist who spent years and years taping fish sounds under the water. It was fish going after fish. She started doing that because during World War II, when they first uh, started using sonar, the sonar people couldn't tell fish sounds from submarine sound. So she spent years taping fish sounds and cataloging them. And, uh, they've been doing it for years. I guess there's, they're still doing it, I suppose. We've uh, tried to attract fishes by sound. I have some lovely stories, but I can't tell them to you because they're still top secret of the things that we've done underseas with sonar. But um, we take a fish or a group of one species put it in a tank or an outside enclosure and then what is the hardest thing of all find out uh, what makes them sound off 
we do all kinds of things to, to uh, bother them, giving them a tiny electric current or frightening them. Many fishes have a territorial sense, and uh, if their territory is invaded, they become vocally angry. I have one wonderful uh, record of a mother whale. Its baby had, was lost. Actually, the baby had died, and we'd taken it out of the top of the water. And uh, the mother didn't realize it had been taken away from her. And it was a nursing baby. But she made a sound which we had never recorded before or again searching for it. And she went around this outside pen. This was in the Bahamas, Bimini. She swim up and down and up and down and make these calling sounds for it. It has been figured that the myth of the Song of the Sirens originated in probably a breeding season chorus of croakers in the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, it was known by all the ancient mariners, apparently, that uh, it was a warning to stay clear. And it probably was a very good warning because they would be on a shoal, you see. Here's the next one. Um, this is a, a short little thing that, um, that Katie Davis and Alex Chadwick put together in 1987. And what I love about this is it's utterly populist in, uh, in approach and really, really easily imitated, um, though, of course, hard, hard to do in a way that's, that's great, but actually easy to do in a way that's really pretty good. And what they did is that they went on the radio and they said, uh, it's going to start snowing soon. Send us your stories about sledding. And people from all over the country sent in these letters, and they were surprised that they got incredibly beautiful, or maybe not surprised, but they simply were deluged with incredibly beautiful letters, funny letters and sad letters. And Katie uh, sent a, a lot of the people into studios and had them either read their letters or tell their stories to her on tape so that she'd have full fidelity of them. And Alex read others. And the other production element is Katie went out and just recorded some kids uh, sledding. No, Barrett Golding did. Barrett Golding did. Is here? Okay. All right. I'm glad we got this straight. Right. Because in Washington, D.C., it's not really a big snow town, whereas Montana. Okay. So you hear she weaves all that together into, into this. I'm going to play you two of the little things because it's just so pretty. Daddy, I don't want to go up to the car. No, we won't. Writing from Connecticut, a woman told us of the time her son first went down a hill all by himself. He was three years old. They'd practiced that morning together on the gentle side slope of the hill by their house. And later around noon at the top of the hill, 
When he wanted to go by himself, she let him. He climbed onto the saucer, grabbed the handles, and then, she writes, he tipped over the crest of the hill in front, the long steep slope. The saucer swung around so that he was facing uphill as he sped backwards. His eyes widened. He yelled, no! And I felt the umbilical cord snap. My baby had thrown himself off the edge of the world and beyond my ability to protect him. Halfway down, the saucer hit a snow ridge and shot up in the air, thumping down on the other side and spinning toward the bottom until he lost his grip and went sprawling. I let out my breath and cheered and clapped for him. He sneaked a peek at his friends, decided not to cry, and struggled up, boasting about how he flew, how he flew that day on his saucer, straight into his future, a more exciting ride than he could imagine. I was standing at the uh, in lawn section of a sled run with my sister. I was five and she was three. And I had decided that I was going to go sledding. And, and she had decided she wasn't going to let me go sledding. So we stood there arguing. And uh, she said she was going to just stand in the middle of a sled run and she wouldn't get off. And... Uh, and I kept telling her, get off, get off, get off, get out of my way. And she'd just stand there and say, no, no. And she was just as stubborn as you can imagine. <laughs> and um, then uh, finally I just had it with her. And I said, uh, I'm going up and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to sled down. And if you don't get out of the way, I'm going to run you over. And, uh, and she just kind of stood there in her looking tubby in her snowsuit with her pink cheeks and her little bright black eyes and she laughed at me and she put her hands on her hips and she just kind of dared me and I went up there right to the top of the hill and I just... If I could just say at this point nobody turns off the radio, you know? Like you took hear my sled and I yelled at her, I'm coming down! And she said, uh, she just laughed, she just laughed. And she didn't believe me. And I just, that did. I put the sled down. I just flopped on it. And I went zooming down the hill. And there she was, this target right there. <laughs> and, um, and I hit her. <laughs> over she went. Over the sled went. And uh, all the mothers and all the neighbors came running. And she'd broken, her leg was broken. <laughs> and... Um, after that, um, when they saw, I just absolutely was not going to apologize. My mother started to call it an accident. <laughs> anyway, like, it says, you know, there are a lot of ways to gather stories and, and the excuse of, of this to go to people. Like, there's something just about the populism of it that's so nice. And it's, this is an excerpt from a 20-minute thing. Um, in the 10 minutes I've left, I'm going to... read a little bit and then maybe we'll play Joe Frank if you want. Um, in in get, putting this together, talking to Johanna and, and Julie, um, they said, well, what work do you find inspiring? And I have to say, you know, the thing that, that, the thing that, I, that, that I, I like is a narrative in, in stories, that the stories unfold like a little movie for radio. And I find that generally I don't find that on the radio. If I want to find decent journalism that's doing that, generally I have to go to print. Um, and, and read writers uh, who, who are doing that. 
Um, and generally, like, I find a lot of my inspiration in the last few years, if I think about stuff that I just think, wow, I, I wish I could do something as good as that, it's, it's various things that I've read. And so, uh, it, it, so all of these things, uh, have the qualities of, of a, of a great radio piece to me, where there are characters in a situation and it unfolds, and at various moments, there are surprising ideas which, which you learn along the way. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, read you a little bit just up, just because I feel like most people don't know about this writer named Richard Kapuscinski, K-A-P-U-S-C. The easy thing to remember if you're looking for him is that he wrote a book called The Soccer War. That's easy to remember and then find, find this guy. He's this Polish journalist who worked in Africa. And um, The Soccer War is this incredible collection where this, the title story is about he's watching uh, TV. He's watching a soccer match on TV with a friend of his who, uh, who lives in Latin America and is just an expert on how everything in Latin American politics works. And by watching the way a crowd reacts at a soccer match, outside a soccer match, his friend turns to him and says, um, Salvador and Guatemala are going to war. Those two countries are going to war. I think it's Salvador and Guatemala. He says, those two countries are going to war uh, within, within a year. And then there's a whole passage where he says, well, normally you just shrug that kind of nonsense off. But he, then he explains exactly the line of logic that his friend had gotten to that point just from watching the crowds. And then the two countries go to war. And he tells the story of that. It's, it's a really, really amazing uh, piece of writing. Um, I'm going to read to you just like a paragraph or two from, uh, from this book called The Emperor. The Emperor is this like classic piece of reporting. And he's, he, this guy's based in um, Africa. And so uh, after Haile Selassie died, uh, he became really interested in, so what was it like for the people who had to be around Haile Selassie all the time, this guy who, who said that he was a direct descendant of God, and, uh, you know, the, like, kings on the earth now, in our time, in our living time, usually don't say that about themselves, and here was one who just did, and you could get witness to this incredibly ancient thing that had been with us all through human history, a king who said he was like a god. And... Um, and uh, ordained by God. And the way he does it is that he almost never says um, Selassie's name. He calls him the emperor. And so in the writing, the way it comes off is it comes off as a kind of fable. I'll just read your paragraph or two so you can get it. And, and what he does is that he talks to all the people who are around him just about what was daily life like. It was a small dog, a Japanese breed. His name was Lulu. He was allowed to sleep in the emperor's great bed. During various ceremonies, he would run away from the emperor's lap and pee on dignitaries' shoes. The august gentlemen were not allowed to flinch or make the slightest gesture when they felt their feet getting wet. I had to walk among the dignitaries and wipe the urine from their shoes with a satin cloth. That was my job for ten years. He had the habit of sleeping very little and rising early when it was still dark outside. He treated sleep as a dire necessity that purposely robbed him of time he would rather have spent ruling or at imperial functions. Sleep was a private, intimate interval, and a life meant to be passed amid decorations and lights. That's why he woke up seeming discontented with having slept, impatient with the very fact of sleep. Only the subsequent activities of the day restored his inner balance. Let me add, however, that the emperor never showed the slightest sign of irritation, nervousness, anger, rage, or frustration. It seemed like he never knew such states, that his nerves were cold and dead like steel, or he had no nerves at all. I'm jumping ahead. Um... During the emperor's hours of official functions, the minister of the pen always stood at hand and took down all of the emperor's orders and instructions. Let me say that during working audiences, his majesty spoke very softly, barely moving his lips. 
The minister of the pen, standing half a step from the throne, had to bend his ear close to the imperial lips in order to hear and write down the imperial decisions. Furthermore, the emperor's words were usually unclear and ambiguous, especially when he did not want to take a definite stand on a matter that required his opinion. When I had to admire the emperor's dexterity, when asked by a dignitary for the imperial decision, he would not answer it straight out, but would rather speak in a voice so quiet that it reached only the minister of the pen, who, ruled, who moved his ear as close, to the micro, as close as a microphone. The minister transcribed his ruler's scant and foggy mutterings. All the rest was interpretation, and that was a matter for the minister, who passed down the decision in writing. The, minister's in pen, the minister of the pen was the emperor's closest confidant and enjoyed, because of this, enormous power. From the secret Kabbalah of the monarch's words, he could construct any decision that he wished. If a move by the emperor dazzled everyone with its accuracy and wisdom, it was one more proof that God's chosen one was infallible. If, on the other hand, from some corner, the breeze carried rumors of discontent to the monarch's ear, he could blame it all on the minister's stupidity. And so the minister was the most hated personality in the court. Public opinion, convinced of his venerable highness's wisdom and goodness, blamed the minister for any thoughtless or malicious decisions, of which there were many. Anyway, it goes on. I, recently, what month is this? May of this year, Mark Bowden, the guy who, uh, who did um, Black Hawk Down, uh, did a cover story for the Atlantic Monthly about Saddam Hussein, where he steals the voice of this um, as a tool to use contemporary reporting. And basically, he talked to people who knew Saddam and were in exile as a way to write about Saddam. And it's just like an incredible, I, I feel like all kind of nonfiction writing, what, it, what it's tending towards when it gets good is it's tending towards a, a fable. It wants to be a fable. It wants to speak in a universal way. And, and, and uh, with the emperor, obviously, that, that's what he does. But he, here's somebody applying it to a contemporary figure. The piece opens, the tyrant must steal sleep. He must, he must vary the locations and times. He never sleeps in his palaces. He moves from secret bed to secret bed. Sleep in a fixed routine or among the few luxuries denied him. It's too dangerous to be predictable. And whenever he shuts his eyes, the nation drifts. His iron grip slackens. Plots congeal in the shadows. For those hours, he must trust someone. And nothing is more dangerous to the tyrant than trust. Saddam Hussein, the anointed one, glorious leader, direct descendant of the prophet, president of Iraq, chairman of its revolutionary command council, field marshal of its armies, doctor of its laws, and great uncle to its peoples, rises at three in the morning. He sleeps only four or five hours a night. When he rises, he swims. All of his palaces and homes have pools. Water is a symbol of wealth and power in a desert country. Like I'm going to skip ahead. Um, you could tell that he read Kapuscinski because I feel like he, he, because he starts off by writing about sleep. Here's a really, really beautiful thing. I, I feel like you get so much information about Hussein that you would never, um, that you would never get. He has a bad back, a slip disc, and swimming helps. It also keeps him trim and fit. This satisfies his vanity, which is epic, but fitness is critical for other reasons. He is now 65, an old man. And be but because his power is grounded in fear, not affection, he cannot be seen to age. The tyrant cannot afford to become stooped, frail, and gray. Weakness invites challenge, coup d'etat. One can imagine Saddam urging himself through a fixed number of laps each morning, pushing to exceed the number he swam the previous year, as if time could be undone by effort and will. Death is an enemy he cannot defeat, only perhaps delay, so he works. He also dissembles. He dyes his gray hair black and avoids using his reading glasses in public. When he is to give a speech, his aides printed in huge letters, just a few lines per page. Because his back problem forces him to walk with a slight limp, 
He avoids being seen or filmed walking more than a few steps. I mean, have any of you heard any of this? Fresh food is flown in for him twice a week. Lobster, shrimp, and fish, lots of lean meat, plenty of dairy products. The shipments are first sent to his nuclear scientists who x-ray them and test them for radiation and poison. The food is then prepared for him by European-trained chefs who work under the supervisions of Al-Himalya, Saddam's personal bodyguards. Each of his more than 20 palaces is fully staffed, and three meals a day are cooked for him at every one. Security demands that palaces from which he is absent perform an elaborate pantomime each day, as if he were in residence. Saddam tries to regulate his diet, allowing stirrings. Anyway, it goes on. Um, with this kind of like fable-like telling of this of this accretion of the facts, which I feel like is applicable to to other kinds of reporting as well. So, I'm out of time. I was told I had to end before five of, uh, so that uh, Julian Johanna could say another word or two. Uh, I guess we'll try to put up the sound files that I couldn't play on the website. Thank you for your attention.